Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we sometimes take two random films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them, but not today. Today, we're just going to be discussing one film, and appropriately, we're calling these half-isodes. So, just to explain, the way these episodes are going to be released is that every two weeks, we're going to alternate between these half-episodes and full episodes. So, why are we doing this? Well, the fact is that the full episodes really take a lot of time to research, produce, record, edit, etc. And, uh, you know, Ryan and I are just a bunch of regular working stiffs with full-time jobs, but we did want to make sure that we were set up to be able to deliver you guys compelling content every couple weeks, and so we came up with this format. Hopefully it works for you, it works for us, and uh, we still get to talk films every couple weeks. So, just as a reminder, or in case this is your first time with us, Esoterica Cinema is less of a film review podcast and more of a film discussion podcast. So, what that dictates is that we're going to have to discuss spoilers. If you're the type of person that doesn't want to have the film spoiled, you can go ahead and check it out and then come back to us here. However, if you don't mind, we are going to hopefully do a good job of navigating you through the film as we discuss it. So, either way, hopefully, whether you've seen the film or not, You'll find this to be an entertaining discussion that you can follow along with. But that being said, if you do want to go ahead and check out the film first, we don't mind just stopping and coming back. So with all that out of the way, let's get on to the show. My name is Jason Peters, and with us today is the ever-so-charismatic Mr. Ryan Siebold. What's up, buddy? How you doing? Hey, I am good, my friend. My uh, Man, this was uh, this was definitely an interesting film. Uh, I'm sure our listeners have already seen the title of the program, but why don't you go ahead and let them know what we're going to be talking about today and introduce the film a little bit. This, uh, yeah, this was a film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I'm really anxious to hear what you think about this because uh, it could go either way. Uh, you're either going to love this one or hate it. I don't know if there's a lot of room for middle ground. I, <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed it. It went down like melted butter. That's my only lobster pun for the show, hey, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, look Take at that. Uh, so <laughs> this one is from 2016, uh, starring Colin Farrell and Rachel Weiss. A uh, little bit of John C. Riley in there. I didn't know he starred in this. Uh, that was a pleasant surprise. I love that man. Um, all right, so this is a love story set in the near future where single people, according to the rules of the city, are arrested and transferred to the hotel. Dun, dun, dun. There, are, uh, there they are obliged to find a matching mate in 45 days. If they fail, they are transformed into an animal of their choosing and released into the woods. A desperate man played by Colin Farrell, escapes from the hotel to the woods where the loners live. He then falls in love, although it is against their rules. Man, yeah, this was, uh, this was something. I, um, I spent the first uh, several minutes uh, of this film watching it, wondering if it was a comedy or a drama or where I was with it. I, I intentionally went into this one blind. Um, yeah. n- n- no pun intended, uh, <laughs> as we get into that. Hey, <laughs> hey spoilers already. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I didn't know uh, what, I, what to expect out of this one. Uh, how about you, Jason? How'd you feel about it? Yeah, no, absolutely same. Uh, I, had, I had heard about it. It had kind of been on my radar. You know, I had figured it was kind of one of those just sort of quirky indie films. I was not prepared for how dark this film is going to be. This was just a right. pitch black comedy that does some some things that most films are not going to have the balls to do. I'm sure it's debatable whether those things work for everybody. It's definitely a film that 
it really wasn't for better or worse like any other film that I can say that I've seen. Um, again, you know, that's not necessarily a compliment in all respects, but it is in a lot of respects. Um, before we continue, though, let's go ahead and I do have a trailer that I want to play for anybody that hasn't seen the film or maybe you're somebody who saw it when it came out. It's been a little bit. You could use a quick refresher. Let's go ahead and listen to the trailer for 2016's The Lobster. Have you ever been on your own before? No, never. Your last relationship lasted how many years? Around 12. Sexual preference? Women. Is there a bisexual option available? No, sir. This option is no longer available. Hmm. And the dog? My brother. He was here a couple of years ago, but he didn't make it. Did you read the leaflet? Yes, I did. As you understand from your brother's experience, if you fail to fall in love with someone during your stay here, you'll turn into an animal. Have you ever danced with anybody? Yes. As an animal, you'll have a second chance to find a companion. What sort of dancing did you do? Just depends on the music. Mind if I join you? It's no coincidence that the targets are shaped like single people and not couples. Did you catch rabbits? Catching a rabbit is difficult. Thank you very much. If you need more rabbits, I'll bring you more. You promise? You can be a loner as long as you like. There is no time limit. Any romantic or sexual relations are punished. We have to be totally synchronized. Three, two. You, you're like a brother to me. Oh, you're my best friend in the whole world. I don't think I'm your best friend in the whole world. Now, have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. A lobster is an excellent choice. If you encounter any problems you cannot resolve yourselves, you will be assigned children. That usually helps. Okay, so, Ryan, the one thing I, w I do want to say about this is that much, like I said just a minute ago, the trailer doesn't do the best job of illustrating just how dark the film is. Once again, this is a film that does some things that are not pleasant, and if you're somebody that enjoys traditional comedies or that's what you're expecting, I don't think this is going to be a film that works for you. By the end, it's pretty much just pure bleakness, but I do have to say that I enjoyed the journey of getting there. So let's go ahead and let's dis <laughs> <laughs> let's discuss this film. When we open, we've got a shot of this, you know, rather unpleasant looking woman, and she's driving down the road. She's framed in a close-up, and right away she stops, she exits the car, and shoots a horse that's standing in this field point blank with a pistol. We immediately cut to credits, and it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, that uh, wears its heart on its sleeve. We know what we're getting into right away. After the credits, we are introduced to Colin Farrell, which, by the way, do you even remember that dude's name? I literally went through all of my notes. I did not have his name in the film written down anywhere, Ryan. So uh, that's actually in my notes is that uh, nobody uses each other's names in the film. They're all very anonymous, and I kind of thought that was intentional to 
add to the bleakness and uh, impersonal nature of these relationships because if you got to know these people and started caring about them, I think it would kind of take away from the humor. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. the fact that they're just these autonomous mannequins, if you will, uh, makes it kind of funnier and lets uh, the director kind of gives him the freedom to do as he will uh, because you're not really as emotionally invested. Um, yeah. The one name that kept coming up that you are most emotionally invested in is Bob the dog. But uh, other than that, <laughs> I don't know anyone's name in this film. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that that wasn't just me. And uh, yeah, you do bring up a good point, which is that I'm sure there was something where some of the things that happen again are very dark. It kind of reminds me of, you know, being John Malkovich, how John Cusack's character goes to some pretty dark places, ends up like, locking Cameron Diaz in the cage because I'm being obsessed with Catherine Keener. And there, there's definitely some moments in this that we'll get to that I probably push even much further than that. So, but yeah, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting perspective, you know, by, by sort of keeping us detached, it maybe allows us to maintain some pathos for these characters where if we became too invested, some of the lesser decisions and actions that they make might affect it too much to where we would lose that. And we'd be actively rooting against them. Right. Then you start to take sides. You start to put a name to a face. All of a sudden, now you're invested in these people, just keeping them nameless, you know? Even when you go on IMDb or, or uh, you know, any website, you start looking down the cast list. Uh, they have names like Donkey Shooter, Doctor, Nosebleed Woman, Hotel Manager, 70-Year-Old Waiter, and so on. So, yeah, yeah these are not uh, named characters, and I think it was an intentional choice by the director. And I, I appreciated it. I thought it was cool. Okay, so when we are introduced to Colin Farrell's character, it's done by way of this long push-in from, like, an OTC shot from behind. Right away, we get a lot of body language. He's very slouched. Basically, his wife is leaving him. She's describing that she's fallen in love with another man after their 11-year marriage, and she's leaving him. And, you know, we immediately sort of understand that he is a man who is emotionally stunted, emotionally distant, we do see this in some really wonderful cinematography. I thought the I thought the uh, production design and the cinematography was really clean, really strong. Did a really good job of emphasizing the atmosphere and the mood. Everything feels appropriately sterile. You know, initially in the hotel, down to they have all the men wearing the same suits and the women wearing the same dresses when they go to that dance. And uh, the other thing about this film, Ryan, and, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this, is... The score really stands out. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I mean, I feel like the score oh, yeah, absolutely. definitely steered a lot of the direction with regards to the emotional responses that we had. What do you think about the score? Yeah. No, no, absolutely. This was uh that the 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 shrieking violins especially. Um yeah. lot of a uh, lot of emotion there because uh, what I thought was nice about the score was that it, it played in contrast directly to the performances. So the mm-hmm. performances were intentionally very monotone. Everybody spoke monotone, uh, very droll. You could tell it's just a room full of depressed single people trying to find <laughs> love in this hotel so they're not turned into animals. And uh, in the most, sounds like a horrific uh, procedure. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and then in in contrast to that, you have these shrieking violins, you have this dramatic score, uh, very orchestral, and I thought that it filled in the gaps nicely because if you didn't have that, man, it it, it would have been a, a a dry biscuit to get through. <laughs> Absolutely, it's the type of score that's really more indicative of like one of those slow burn thrillers, right? Like the type that get nominated for a lot of awards, but like nobody goes see them, so they don't make any money. 
but, you know, and they use <laughs> – they have these really sort of – in addition to just these, you know, traditional sort of dramatic tones and melodies and whatnot, there's also these really bombastic sort of jarring sounds. Reminds me a little bit maybe of Johnny Greenwood's soundtrack to There Will Be Blood in that respect. Okay. Um, yeah, and, I'll uh, go with that. Yeah, yeah. So – that does a really interesting thing where, like you said, without that, it might feel a lot more like a traditional sort of indie quirky comedy. But the nature of that score, it's really unsettling. It's kind of a disturbing score. And so it constantly gives you that feeling of, like I said, being unsettled, where even though what's happening on screen before you or what's being said is funny. And so it does create that very interesting tone in terms of the juxtaposition of those elements. So so from there, Ryan, he checks into the hotel and we can very quickly see that this is a sort of cut and dry operation where there's no room for deviation. I think we get that from the fact that there's no bisexual option when he's registering and they ask him to pick a sexuality. And they said that they like eliminated it like a last year, a year ago or so. And then later he asks for a half size on his shoes. They say, we don't have half sizes. It's one or the other. So, you know, this is a very sort of regimented operation that they have. And we soon learn the hook of the film, which is that after checking in, he has 45 days to find love. And if he doesn't, he's going to be turned into an animal of his choosing which in this case is a lobster, hence the title of the film. And Ryan, I do actually have a clip of that scene, so let's go ahead and listen to this clip from The Lobster. Hello. I'm the hotel manager, and this gentleman is my partner. We'd like to welcome you. You're one of the lucky ones. You have one of our superior rooms, which means you have a view. Did you read the leaflet? Yes, I did. Very good. Now, the fact that you'll turn into an animal if you fail to fall in love with someone during your stay here is not something that should upset you or get you down. Just think as an animal, you'll have a second chance to find a companion. But even then, you must be careful. You need to choose a companion that is a similar type of animal to you. A wolf and a penguin could never live together, nor could a camel and a hippopotamus. That would be absurd. Think about it. I understand this discussion is a little unpleasant for you, but it is my duty to prepare you psychologically for all possible outcomes. Now, have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. Why a lobster? Because lobsters live for over 100 years, are blue-blooded like aristocrats, and stay fertile all their lives. I also like to see very much. I water ski and swim quite well since I was a teenager. I must congratulate you. The first thing most people think of is a dog, which is why the world is full of dogs. Very few people choose an unusual animal, which is why they are endangered. A lobster is an excellent choice. So that clip is really indicative of the tone that's at play here. We sort of uh, very soon also learn that there's some sort of like hunting activity that takes place. There's that scene where right after this, there's like a giant gun and tranquilizer darts that are on the desk. And so we pretty much soon learn that there's this whole element to this experience where they have to like hunt these people. And we end up finding out they're hunting these loners and they're basically people who have like defected from the hotel before they had a chance to be turned into the animal. And, uh, 
I think that kind of yeah, pres- I was pretty lost for a, for a big part of the beginning of the film. Um, they they did that whole hunt scene, and uh, I mean, I kind of got it, but they didn't really explain who these people were that they were hunting. Uh, they were wearing rain jackets. That uh, you would see them piling up the bodies. Um, they were hunting them with tranquilizers. When he first checks into his room, they do a couple things. They give him a ration of tranquilizers and show him where his gun is going to be uh, mm-hmm. hanging on the wall in a ceremonious fashion, um, and then. Uh, also, they tie one of his arms behind of his uh, back on a belt <laughs> yeah. to try to show him a little bit about uh, what he's missing. It's a metaphor, an allegory, I guess, for uh, what being single is and missing a, uh, a piece of you that can complete your situation. Uh, being single for as long as I have, uh, Jason, I, I kind of think relationships are the other way, where being single, I have two arms. And being in a relationship, now I have a third arm growing out of my belly button that's in the way all the time. Uh, that's <laughs> that's just my take. But, yeah, uh, then they do this hunt, and uh, we get introduced to uh, John C. Riley and his other friend. And uh, mm-hmm. they kind of, and some of the other cast of characters, the singles from the hotel. Yeah, and his character was one, it's like, I'm always going to love some John C. Riley, right? Like, that guy's just great all the time. You see his face, and it immediately makes you smile. I didn't quite love his characterization in this, um, but I, you know, it was still nice to see the guy. And yeah, that hunt. Oh, I disagree. I really? thought he was one of my favorite parts of the film. Really? Absolutely. I, Every time he came on screen, I just had a big old smile ear to ear. Yeah, but I, I don't know. Like he does that thing where he's sort of like playing it like he's kind of mentally challenged, and I don't know. It just seemed a little weird the accent that he was employing. I mean. First of all, let's go ahead and he just had a lisp send- or something, a bit of a speech impediment. Uh, impediment but uh, I mean, I think that's just John C. Riley, dude. I think that's just. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's him acting. I don't know. Yeah, I and love the guy so much. I do, I do as well. Look, don't get me wrong. Like I said, but it was more for like I was happy to see him because of work he had done elsewhere, and I already liked the guy. Right? Like it wasn't like I loved the character in this film. No, that's just me there. Um, but the other thing that I will say is that the film kind of establishes itself early on as a satire on the idea of coupling. I think that's kind of really the central theme about this whole film. It's very sort of critical of the notion that we have this idea in our society that humans have to pair and to mate and to propagate and all that sort of notion of society. It, the, this film is not interested in that idea. You know, this is a film that where the filmmaker, I think, very much prefers his own company to the company of others. And I don't think he feels like he needs to make any apologies for doing so. I think it's one of these films and these stories that's critical of the idea that we all need to get married and have kids and blah, blah, blah. And like, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think the the message is that if we want to be alone, you know, that should be okay. There shouldn't be this pressure exerted on us to have to, like I said, couple and propagate and move this thing forward if if you will you know like if you want to be an artist or you want to do your own creation do your own thing that's just as well but society puts this emphasis on like i said propagation of species so what do you think about that ryan well that's the that's the first half of the film and you know the second half of the film does the exact opposite so i i kind of took like the message uh from the film um you know if you want to uh be alone, you could be alone. If you want to be a couple, you could be a couple. But the, it's it's more a, a comment to me on the pressures of either way uh, from society and mm-hmm. uh, how we all kind of 
judge each other for whatever it be. Uh, you know, oh, they're going to hook up with this person. They're going to be with that person. That'll never last. Or they should be. How are they still single? Blah, blah, blah. So, you know, uh, I think that especially in the day and age of social media, um, which, you know, this coming out and being filmed probably around 2014, 2015 for a 2015, 2016 release. Uh, that was, you know, right at the dawn of, you know, uh, hardcore social media. And when we all started to stop looking at each other's cat memes and child photos and started to really get hot and heavy with judging each other. And that's where the fun began. So <laughs> um, I think that that kind of left our, our uh, the nature of our society in a uh, dystopian crossroads, if you will, uh, Black Mirror style. And I think that uh, the director was kind of commenting on that a little bit and holding a mirror up to society in the most bleak uh, and yet hilarious way possible. Uh, I, so real quick, uh you know, the tone of the film is obviously we've commented on it several times. It's very, very black comedy, very dark comedy. And mm -hmm. so were you laughing through this? Did you find it funny? I was I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this. I thought it was hilarious. But I, and then I'm like, am I just fucked up? Is that just on me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think those two things have to be mutually exclusive, dude. <laughs> yeah, no. Was I, I being fucked up, or <laughs> you like, you like? I think, I think, I think it can be both funny and you are fucked up. I think there's room for both of those things. To oh be yeah, true. yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I got it, got it. Right. Um, yeah, no. I mean, you know, I felt the same way. I did think it was funny. I found myself. I, I so with films like this, I don't necessarily find myself laughing hysterically out loud you know it's not like oh <laughs> that was a knee slapper like type of comedy the way that i don't know something broad like airplane can be right um or like a just great joke from the simpsons or futurama or something like that uh so but i was chuckling throughout this and it's more just it's like when you interact with someone who's got a very unique sensibility and they're just kind of funny in the way that they phrase things and the way that they move and their body language and the metaphors they come up with, right? Like they're just a little unique and a little off, but rather than being weird in an off-putting way, it's weird in a sort of charming way. And I thought this film was a lot like that guy, you know? Agreed. Yep. Same. But then that guy also like goes home and like chokes strippers or something, which would be like the weird orchestral strings or something, right? Because... Anytime, again, you know, it felt like it was getting too funny, he would just insert either a moment or a musical cue or a visual cue, something to make you feel uncomfortable. Like, hey, don't get too easy, buddy. So, like, even after the dance, you know, he does, we get that really cool slow-mo shot where it's a super awkward dance and Colin Farrell gets up and he's going to go ask, like, the pretty girl that gets the nosebleeds to dance and it takes him, like, what, 45 seconds to get there because the whole thing's shot in slow-mo. But the slow-mo looks great. They they did a really good job of capturing that uh, such that it looked really fluid and stunning when it was unfolding on screen. Not every film can do that, especially, like, indie films. But when you know what you're doing, you can get that to look really good. They obviously knew what they were doing. But, yeah, and so there's a scene where right after that, they go to John C. Riley's character, the, the management of the hotel, that is, and they find out that he's been masturbating, which is strictly against the rules. And so they end up putting a toaster on his table and then jamming his hand into the toaster and holding it down and pushing it down so that, like, the coils are just literally burning his hand. And it's right after this. That'll kind teach of, him. 
<laughs> it was kind of just after this like funny, sweet moment, right? And so again, I feel like the the writer director just made a point to where he was like Anytime he felt like the audience was maybe getting a little too comfortable or the film was getting a little too sweet or funny or innocent, he would just throw these things at you that made you feel unsettled again. So, yeah, so I did laugh. I did chuckle, but I also felt uncomfortable. And sometimes both of those emotions were at the same time. And I just, you know, I do appreciate that juxtaposition, Ryan. I yeah same I you know that's what makes it a dark comedy and and uh, he definitely set this in a dystopian future or environment it wasn't even a future that's what was weird it was almost just a, a parallel reality um, alternate you know reality so uh, they also uh, spend a decent amount of time focusing on people's defining characteristics and that's how they are to be matched that plays a big part of the plot of the film mm-hmm. so it kind of starts right out the gate. Um, if someone uh, like uh, Colin Farrell is one of his close friends, uh, we're going to be using a lot of these generalities because, again, none of the characters really have names, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. So one of uh, uh, Colin Farrell's friends has a bit of a limp. So he is looking for – he said his ex-wife had a limp. She passed away. So now he's feeling the challenge of and the struggle of finding another woman that has a limp. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ends up – trying to pair up with the nosebleed girl who, uh, and I'm not making this up. She is literally in the cash sheet as nosebleed girl. (laughs) So uh, he ends up bashing his face at random times secretly to give himself a nosebleed so that she will like him and be able to pair up. Everyone seems to have these defining characteristics, which only adds to the challenge of finding a mate uh, that has a similar characteristic and uh, ultimately leads to our finale of the film, which we'll get to in a bit. Jason, uh, in this scenario, what would you say would be one of your defining characteristics? You're a married man. Do you think that had any play in your uh, <laughs> ultimate vows? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I think that uh, I was one of those people that was in, that was probably accepted in spite of a litany of flaws. Uh, so I think that <laughs> in the spirit of that, we'll just go with my defense defining characteristic being heavily flawed okay and my wife is uh pretty awesome and definitely is not really so yeah i think (laughs) hey someone doesn't have to sleep in the guest bedroom tonight (laughs) yes right hopefully she's listening hopefully 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 i'm I'm gonna get a nice dinner or something for for saying some nice words it does (laughs) (laughs) it does uh you know, it, it did it did um, you know make you think though, and I thought that it was a an interesting, again, kind of comment on society as far as uh, how we kind of view who we pair up with. Is it opposites attract? Do you look for these similarities? Um, maybe wrongly so. Maybe you know we should all be a little more open minded instead of looking for, uh, you know, the match with the limp or the bloody nose. You know, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, after just thinking about it a little bit more, I do think that I sort of appreciate. A little bit more what's going on there. So I think kind of what it's probably trying to say is that so often we may look to these sort of surface level commonalities as what we're looking for in in somebody that's compatible when really perhaps it's more of the deep seated values that we should be looking at. And I think that in answer to your previous question, Ryan, that's like the one thing that like me and my wife do have in common. So like she does not like weird movies She doesn't like weird music and like, you know, like extreme rock or like punk or like 
Uh, she likes like old school, like poppy, like 90s punk and stuff like that. But point is, like on the surface, we don't like the same books, the same movies, the same music, etc. So you would ask yourselves like, oh, you know, they're not going to be. Why are they together? That probably doesn't seem like they'd be too compatible. However, we have the same common cores and the same values and the same ideas about what type of people we should be and the type of people that we respond positively to and negatively toward, etc. So I think that in that respect, you know, we probably do a good job of embracing some of those core values, whereas maybe some other people, you know, they get together over, you know, a love of a similar love of similar movies or music or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden they find out they're dramatically different people and it's just not going to work out. So maybe there's some sort of common or commentary there with regard to that. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just looking for a nosebleed girl, Jason. I'm just a nosebleed <laughs> guy looking for a nosebleed girl. I think you're overshooting this one, buddy. Well, let me ask <laughs> you. Maybe that's why you're married and I'm not. Let me ask you, dude, how often are you willing to uh, bash your head into the concrete and give yourself a little nosebleed? Daily. Daily. I don't know if you've dated recently. I know you've been married for a little while, but it feels like you're bashing your head into uh, something to get your nosebleed. That's, that's what dating in, in these times feels like. Oh, man. Welcome to 2020. Yeah. I don't envy you, dude. I don't envy you. It's been it's been a long time. If I had to jump back out there, man, I'd be uh, my game would be so rusty, dude, and I wouldn't even understand how to get by. I was like, yeah, I just it was before. I mean, we got together before, uh, like you know, Tinder and and phone apps and online dating was like really like that stuff was just starting to come out. Man, if I had to do that stuff, like we'll talk about that. It's just like. Thank God that this ended up working out because if it didn't and we had to go Sign back me up out for the there, hotel. it's like, this just sounds like the worst <laughs> thing in the world. No offense to you or anybody. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Hey, that I, sounds cool. I'm here talking to you. I'm not out on a date right now. So what does that say? <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, also um, we get a heavy dose from about the, the dance on in is when it really started to settle in with me, how monotone everybody was speaking. And it, and it seemed to only pile on as the movie went down the rabbit hole, uh, as it were, uh, it just seemed like it got more and more monotone and the delivery of speech was so bland, which played again, very parallel or, or opposite in contrast to the, the score and what they were saying. Cause they were talking about, I mean, it was intense. Some of the dialogue was very, very dark. Uh, specifically, the, um, the 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 female character that Colin Farrell ends up trying to pair up with uh, about midway through the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that chick was intense. <laughs> this is the lady that kind of looks like a young Glenn Close that shot the the donkey or the horse or whatever it was in the opening <laughs> of the film. You never really know who she is, and then you get to know this woman, and you're like, oh, that's the woman that shot that horse. She's crazy. Yeah. And she also overmeets her quota of... Uh, the villagers or the loners in the woods this lady has just been so every uh loner that you you shoot that you bag and tag and are able to bring back to the hotel um that has escaped the hotel uh, you get to add a day onto your sentence if you will i I don't know Mm -hmm. i I guess it's a sentence um at the hotel your stay before you get to which gives you more time to pair up with someone um, and it doesn't seem like she's even interested in pairing up. She's just in it for the thrill of it all. She knows she could bag and tag these loners pretty easily out in the woods. So, you know, she's just seeing people come and go out of her life. It's kind of revealed um, in the 
uh, bag and tag scene where they bring the loners back in and start piling it up. They start, you know, kind of take tally of who brought in what. We find out Colin Farrell didn't bring in any, neither did John C. Riley, I don't think, at that time. But she brings in several, and she's just adding time. For every one day she's there, it seems like she's adding five. And uh, she's got years to just hang out, where everybody starts with about a month, I believe. Uh, she's got, I think, a uh, hundred and some odd days left, and who knows how long she's been there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, pretty amazing. What a life. <laughs> so the one thing I do want to talk about, and you, you brought you brought this up, was just specifically about the narration, right? So for me, like the narration was the was the one thing that was really distracting for me. So the dialogue was one of these things where everybody has this very unique way of speaking and it's very idiosyncratic and everybody gets to put their own spin on it and they have sort of different rhythms. But the narration of the film that's done ultimately by Rachel Weiss, the character that he's going to meet in the second half of the film that he falls in love with, it was delivered so flatly and so stilted and so choppy. It was like, it was clear that she was directed to deliver this in a, like you said, sort of flat, monotone way. And I didn't understand what the point of that was because it was actively distracting. The only thing that I could come up with, Ryan, and you can give me your take on this, is that maybe it's supposed to be like she's narrating it after the fact, right? Like she's she's looking back after the movie's over and narrating it and she's, you know, spoiler alert, again, she's going to go blind by the end of the film. And so maybe the idea is that she's overtaken with these negative emotions because she's blind and she's just sort of apathetic and given up on life. And that's why they had her do that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's about this time in the film that uh, her narration admits to knowing uh, our character so up until um, you get through the, the bagging and tagging and you get through the prom dance type scene and all of that, and there's little bits of narration to kind of carry it through um, that are generally told ambiguously. And then somewhere around where we're at in the film, uh, after we've done all the gotten to know you stuff and we start to see a couple uh, people pair up uh, and this and that, uh, Rachel Vice. Uh, her narration admits to knowing our Colin Farrell character and starts to speak of things in the past tense. So uh, I thought it was a really slow burn with that narration until we get to the point where they actually meet in the woods and we find out who this person is. Uh, Then it all starts to come together. But Mm -hmm. um, again, I think this film does a tremendous job of keeping you in the dark until you need to know things. You're on a need-to-know basis um, along the way. And uh, that felt a little off-putting at first because as a viewer... Hey man, I paid three ninety nine for this movie, or I, I, you know, I got a Netflix subscription. Uh, I, I deserve to be in the know. I'm an in the know guy. Like I'm sitting at the table, I'm watching this thing. Let me know some stuff. No, uh-uh. they're gonna keep you in the dark, and they're just gonna dribble the facts out. It's a little frustrating at first. If you're out there and you haven't watched the film, uh, bear with it. It does yeah, get better, definitely. And, uh, and they and they let you know everything in due time until the very end when they let you know nothing at all, and <laughs> they just leave you hanging. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit, but. Uh, yeah. Um, so earlier I, in the film, I was sorry. Go ahead, dude. No, I mean, I was just thinking like what it would be like if we delivered our podcast in a monotone dialect, like uh, like those characters, or if any other films could get away with uh, with doing these performances. <laughs> it was, 
I don't I, know. I, I was amazed at myself for watching it. it. It was a real true testament to the characters, to the dialogue, to the story that I was even sitting through all this nonsense uh, and the music and everything. They did such a great job balancing all of it. I love this film. Yeah, it definitely it definitely could have gone off the rails in a negative way as it stands. Right, yeah. yeah, as it stands, it was like a controlled sort of off the rails, right? But earlier yep. in the movie, uh, you had mentioned the scene with uh, or the developing relationship between, I guess, suppose our main character. Uh, do we have to just call him by the, their actor's name, like Colin Farrell, the lobster? Like I, yep. I, I really for the purpose of this podcast, I wish he had a name. It would make it easier to talk about him. But either way, so you he, know, honestly, his name is David. I'll give you oh, that. Is it? And uh, I'm looking at the I, I'm looking at the IMDb cast list, and uh, he's one of the only people that have a name. David okay. and and his dog Bob, <laughs> his dog brother Bob. Um. So yeah. So when David goes to like the the cold Russian woman, who yeah, totally seems like she would be like some sort of like KGB assassin in a different film or something, right? She reminded me of Frau Farbishna from Austin Powers. Um, <laughs> I kept expecting her to scream to her orderlies, bring in the sharks. <laughs> That's great. But uh, but yeah, so, you know, we see that some of these people are, you know, not making it and they're being turned into animals. And David is worried about that. So we get this. I don't know, man. For me, this was a super brutal scene to watch when the... Uh, you know, the, the poor blonde woman who actually was the chick from Extras, if you remember. I love that girl. Uh, and uh, she ends up, like, throwing herself off the building, but she doesn't quite kill herself. And so she's just, like, like laying there on this concrete in the pool of her own blood and just wailing horrifically for, like, felt like a long time, dude. It was, like, what, three minutes? It was a long time. Yeah. It was a long She said she was going to do minutes. it. They were they were on a bus uh, out to go on one of their daily hunts of the loners out in the woods, and um, yeah, she told Colin Farrell, "If I don't find someone soon, I'm jumping off." And it was really funny too because she said, uh, "I'm going to jump off of three, room 308, which would be a three three story fall." And she's like, "Nah, maybe I'll I'll spice it up and do 408." And then we find out later she only jumped from 108. <laughs> she yeah. just beat shit on the pavement. And it wasn't enough to do anything but just hurt her dramatically. And she just wailed and wailed while the uh, heartless woman um, that shot the donkey in the beginning uh, sat patiently by and just drank her tea and listened to the screams. And uh, I think it did a lot to play for, for her character more than anything to show that she would tolerate such pain without even moving a muscle to go get up and help or call for help or anything <laughs> she couldn't be bothered and in fact i think she relished in it oh yeah no she definitely did dude well and then we sort of see you know david start to turn because that's where he comes up and he decides that he's going to go through with basically this con and he's going to convince the russian girl that he's this cold calculating dude so that they can like get together and move on so that he doesn't have to get turned into a lobster and so he's making some pithy comment about her and basically acting like he doesn't give a crap and then she actually the russian girl pretends to choke on an olive and he kind of knows what's up so he doesn't try to save her and then because he doesn't do that because he doesn't try to make a move to save her she's like oh we must be the same we're a match let's go ahead and move on up together you're heartless too Sweet. yeah i'm in yeah so but you know he's actually not heartless and so she's gonna figure out Real quick, what his game is, we see right off the bat, you know, they have some really, really dis dispassionate sex. And uh, 
you know, he, he, at one point, like he tries to kiss her and she sort of like makes this like horrible stink face. Like, what the hell are you doing? And there's little moments where as they're living together, he'll try to like cuddle up to her a little bit and she'll kind of just resist. And so she's starting to get the idea like, oh, this guy I think is not what he seems. He actually does care. And she comes up with a test, which is to beat the shit out of his dog to death, which we know is actually his brother. Now, the one thing I will say real quick. We find out. Right yeah. around that time, or I didn't know. I didn't know that that was his brother. I mean, obviously, we. I had been cued in that it was somebody because we're seeing people turn into animals. They even say in the very beginning when he picks a lobster, they ask him who you know what animal he wants to turn into. Uh, he chooses a lobster because he loves the sea and they could live for a hundred years and all these things. Uh, and they say, and she said, "Oh, that's a great choice. You'd be surprised. Everyone chooses a dog. That's yeah. why there's so many dogs in the world." And he's got a dog right there next to him, so it's like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's somebody. Whether it's his parents or a sibling. Sure enough, it turns out it's his brother." Uh, so yeah, she beats the shit out of the dog, and it. She describes the beating that she gave to the dog to try to get him to twitch and uh, and show his true colors. Uh, he does not uh, at first. And then we cut to the dog on the bathroom floor. And yeah. we see her foot first, I think. And it's covered yep. in blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at first you're wondering, like, is she bluffing to try to get him to flinch? She was not. And again, <laughs> this is where the dark side of it is, you know. It's a dark comedy. Um, geez, you know. It makes you feel really uncomfortable when you laugh. It makes you, I don't know. It's its its an off-putting film, but I... I like where it took me, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're probably like off. You said people. earlier, you're like, it's probably what it is. We're off putting people. And s- so we, we enjoy off putting films. They match our off puttingness. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I know. But then when you, when you made that comment earlier about the, the guy goes home and chokes strippers, I'm like, Oh shit. I should probably be careful about what I say about this. Film. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, do we, do we need to, do we need to investigate your closet over there? Please don't. <laughs> Let's let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> I mean, when you hey, when you live in Tampa, Florida, they give you two strippers a year to do that. It's just part of the deal. <laughs> yeah, you it comes guys with my homeowners association. Yeah, you guys do. Uh, you guys do things a uh, pretty pretty unique way over there, don't you? Hey, man, it's this humidity. <laughs> well, uh, you know, speaking of off-putting and, and, and uncomfortable. Hot enough to choke a stripper today, I'll tell you. <laughs> I did like the way that, uh, so shortly thereafter, he starts crying, right? He, he finds his dog slash brother beaten to death. He starts crying. That's the indication to her that she knows that this was all a bullshit ruse. And so she's going to take him back to go turn him into management. And we get some really sort of cool hotel hallway shots that reminded me a lot of the shining and i thought that again that was just in the spirit of like oh let's invoke some horror vibes while we're at this dark comedy thing right and uh yeah and and a lot of shrieking violins at this point and uh the whole thing kind of slowly crept green to me i need to go back and rewatch some of this because i felt like it started off a little more sterile and then Mm -hmm. as we went into the film a lot of the uh whites turned to green from the fluorescence uh, it almost felt like the beginning of the Matrix. I know that that's sure. a film that's really famous for doing this, uh, where it's got a little green tone in the white always to kind of make you feel a little sick, uh, a little off. Um, yeah. I don't know. Did you notice that? Well, you know, I, I, I it's funny because I didn't actively recognize that when you're talking about it, but I did kind of notice that like something had shifted. And now that I'm sort of replaying some of those scenes in my head, it's like, oh, yeah, I think they must have like they probably 
you know, affected the white balance or something to give it a little bit of that tint. But I also think it's probably yeah a good chance that maybe it had to do with the fact that like they retreated to the woods. So pretty much it. So after this point, uh, you know, he ends up elbowing his his uh, not ex-wife, but elbowing the Russian woman that he moved in with in the gut after she's chasing him, evades her. The maid actually ends up helping him. She uh she hides him. And then after she passes the door of the apartment that he's hiding in, he busts out and shoots her with a trank and then takes her to the transition room. Throws her in there. She turns into whatever she turns into. And then he escapes. And, you know, we're officially at the second half of the film that takes a very dramatic turn at this point. And from here on out, they pretty much spend the whole time in the forest with exception to the scenes where they go into the city. So maybe you know, you're talking about obviously a forest is going to be majority green. And so maybe there's something there with that green aesthetic in the forest, etc. I don't know. No, I mean, the green here. to me was in the hotel. And uh, it, it seemed to get more so as we went. Like for me, the movie kind of opened gloomy, little gray skies. It looked like it was all filmed in England or, or somewhere over there uh, where they don't see a lot of sun. And because um, the whole film kind of played out that way. But but inside the interior of the hotel, specifically with this scene, I, I wrote down, uh, is this movie getting more green or is it just me? And it did occur to me that filmmakers have used that to make you feel a little sick, a little off, like something's not yeah. right. And yeah. I mean, this whole film, it, I mean, you just described the whole film. By <laughs> yeah. saying so, Nothing about uh, this film is right at all. <laughs> right. Yep. So pile on the green, folks. So then we, uh, you're right, though. Then we we escape. We go out to the woods. And uh, and then in the city, we have a lot more uh, bright uh, little little oranges. You know, we get a little more cheery whenever they go into the mall uh, and escape for supplies uh, to put on a ruse as if they are couples, even though they are single. Um I love the woods scene too. This is kind of a tale of two halves kind of movie where mm-hmm. you have the hotel chapter in the beginning and then you have the woods where he's now joined and escaped the hotel and, and killed his mate and uh, or transformed her rather uh, and then taken off. I really did, did you want to see how they transformed him or were you glad that they didn't so that you could just imagine it how you wanted to? <laughs> I mean, dude, what was this movie made for? Like four million dollars? Like they're they're not gonna have room in the budget for a transformation scene like that. <laughs> like, there's just you're not All gonna right. get that. I'm sorry. You know, like best case scenario, you like you do like the uh, speaking of Austin Powers, you know, you do like the old thing where you know they just they go into the closet and you close the door and then you just cut and then real quick like something else comes out like immediately like those old 60s tropes <laughs> like that's what you do you know just like person comes in and a snake comes out like because again dude what am I going to do I've got four million dollars and I've got to pay Colin Farrell and I've got to pay John C. Riley and I've got to pay Rachel Weiss, and so you know yep <laughs> that's I mean that's fair that there was a, a moment in the film where I was expecting to see it and then I just gave up on it and then by the end of the film I was glad I kind of uh, appreciated the ambiguity that I get to just kind of let that exist in my own brain. Cause they did say it was horrific. And uh, there was a part of the film as well, where they described it, what happened and how they transform you and take the brain out. And then they remove your eyes and they send the scrap meat in and blah, blah, blah. And they, they, uh, the, the, I think it's when the, the guys are all kind of talking about how they are going to be transformed and, and swapping notes on what they're going to be. John C. Riley wants to be a parrot, I think, uh, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. He does. Yeah. Um, but even though he has the speech impediment, so, the other guy rides him for, I'm going to be a parrot with a speech impediment. All these little mini jokes like that I thought were hilarious. Yeah, so, you know, after he escapes, 
he ends up meeting Rachel Weiss's character, who, by the way, after all these years, still so gorgeous. Hadn't seen her in anything. I in a love while. Rachel Weiss. She's so good. She's she so is, pretty. She's a great actress. Oh. I just I loved seeing her. Yes. Yeah, it was Any really nice. Any movie that she is in she is made better for it. 100%. Uh, right ba- down to The Mummy. Uh, any film I see with her in it, I'm just all in anytime she's on screen. Uh, just super lovable. And um, yeah. Agreed, agreed. So naturally, David starts to become attracted to her as as any as anyone would. And uh, but, you know, the loners have their own sort of strict rules about avoiding any sort of romantic or sexual activity. I believe the penalty is mutilation, so they have to keep it a secret. And so pretty much the second half, you know, most of the second half of the film is them sort of growing closer together at times further apart after, you know, the she ends up getting blinded. But until then, you know, it's sort of them falling in love, but they're not able to be open with it, so they have to disguise it. They do get these little moments where they go to visit the uh, the parents of the leader, I think it is, or somebody, and... Uh, in, in the city, and so they pretend to be in yeah, love. Yeah, I didn't really get that. I think it's just a, a chance for them to, you know, express their love physically. But ultimately, I do think it was probably a plot device because the leader had to figure it out, right? And so instead of just... I think that that's the initial clue is it's like, oh, they are way too into this, you know, pretending to be to be making out thing. There's probably more there. Well, it was I'm, done all so over the top that it was comedic, you know, yeah. because they're trying to hide. Rachel Weiss and Colin Farrell are trying to hide their love for each other. And uh, but then when they go to visit her parents or whenever they go into town, they have to play a couple. Uh, yes. So the the leader of the the loners is a woman and she's pretending to be married to a man they have paperwork that they have to show security people check up on them where is your mate blah 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 oh she's shopping she has my papers this and that but then when they went to go visit her the leaders uh the leader woman of the loners um the princess leia character if you will that's kind of leading them uh the rebels through the woods and, and saving them from darts uh but doing it in such the most nihilistic way where she makes them dig their own graves should they be killed <laughs> and uh uh, yeah, then they go to her parents' house and they have to, and then that, in playing the part, Rachel Weiss and Colin Farrell make out and are all over each other, uh, but so over the top that it's, it plays out funny. I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it reminded you of like two horny teenagers, so to speak, but before that, I forget if it was before or after, they do, they do go to her house the parents house a couple times but i did really think that the scene where they go shopping in the mall was super effective just because of the way that they filmed it it was sort of this like ethereal hallucinatory scene where because we kind of forget like these people including you know david and rachel weiss like they're fugitives you know they're basically like on the run from the law so they can't just go to the mall and go shopping if they're stopped and, you know, their their papers are going to be demanded, they're not going to have them. Like, they're going to get taken away and they're going to be transformed into whatever animal they chose earlier. So, you know, in, and I thought that they did a good job of using that scene to remind us, like, hey, yeah, this is some Agreed. serious shit for these guys. And again, it was almost like, you know, done like the Colonel Kurtz sort of apocalypse now, like just weird hallucinatory things. So they did a good job of reminding us that. Up until that point where they went shopping uh, for supplies and whatnot, um, we had really only seen the uh, antagonist-protagonist scene between the hotel and the losers. And those roles get reversed when 
Colin Farrell shift sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're kind of with Colin Farrell the whole time. But what we don't get let in on is how the rest of society and the rest of the world ha- uh, deems these people as unworthy and how they end up at the hotel in the first place. Um, I was kind of led to believe in the beginning part of the film that it was almost voluntary that they went there. But by the time we end up in the real world scenario of the mall and meeting her parents, uh, the leader's parents, uh, we find that the rest of the world is in on the joke and they, um, they're very, this is very much a dystopian future and they're sending these people to this hotel as they're seen to be unfit as a, um, almost like a, uh, a, a, a sexual, a sexuality, a reversal, process or something like where you would send someone who is uh gay or something to make them straight uh that's kind of how i viewed it almost like like one of those religious camps that do that and so uh yeah i don't know um i thought that you to to your point i thought it was done very effectively agreed agreed and so as a result of this you know there's that moment where they get stopped in the mall by the security guard and he almost gets busted but then you know she comes up at the last minute and the security guard asks to see her papers, and at the last minute says, "Ah, oh, it's okay, you know, run along, you little scamps. So they avoid that, and as a result, they decide, um, as well as to keep their relationship a secret from the leader, they start developing this nonverbal communication with one another. And I actually do have a clip of that, so let's go ahead and listen to this, just in case anybody doesn't remember or hasn't seen the scene. We've developed a code so that we can communicate with each other, even in front of the others, without them knowing what we are saying. When we turn our heads to the left, it means, I love you more than anything in the world. And when we turn our heads to the right, it means, watch out, we're in danger. We had to be very careful in the beginning not to mix up, I love you more than anything in the world with, watch out, we're in danger. When we raise our left arm, it means, I want to dance in your arms. When we make a fist and put it behind our backs, it means, let's fuck. The code grew and grew as time went by, and within a few weeks, we could talk about almost anything without even opening our mouths. So, as their relationships develops, they're becoming closer and closer. They've got this secret language between the two of them. We see them growing. Their language was hilarious to me. <laughs> Their sign language was like so over the top silly. It wasn't sign language, although I think they called it that at one time, but it was very much uh, uh, a do the hokey pokey kind of situation. <laughs> right feet in, right feet out. You know, it's a lot of baseball sign calling. It was kind of funny. Definitely. Yeah. There was a lot of like Mr. Burns, like sign, like finger wagging, ship ha- <laughs> hip shaking from like the right. baseball episode. Yeah. And they would and they would get the most like elaborate sentences or paragraphs out of the most <laughs> simplest of signs. <laughs> like, and oh, it was. Yeah. yeah. yeah oh, and are it was you like sure so, you want to do that? It was so subtle, too. I think at one point they're like, if I if I turn my head to the left, it means I love you. If I turn my head to the right, it means danger is coming. Help me or something. It's like, but let's make sure that we don't misinterpret. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that was drastically different things that are very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like how those are like the only two scenarios that would come up with that. But um, but yeah, so and shortly thereafter, I mean, we're starting to sort of wrap up the film here because we get that scene where the loners come up with a scheme to capture the hotel management. 
and they give the guy the gun and say that, you know, he'll be allowed to live if he kills her. Turns out to be no bullets in the gun. They sort of leave them to deal with the consequences. And it's funny because when they finish, they go to the forest and there's that big scene where they're all celebrating by just playing like electronic music in their headphones oh, and I dancing to themselves. I love that. They even make a comment earlier in the film where they say that they avoid dancing with each other by only listening to electronic music. And I <laughs> that was fucking hilarious. Hell yeah, dude. And it was so funny too because the other thing is it reminded me exactly of that really infamous like goth rave video that's on YouTube that we've all seen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, but performed by 40, 50-year-olds like Rachel Weisz and Colin Farrell. It- Flailing their arms around and uh, (laughs) all in their own little world with their eyes closed, all, you know, subtly uh, forlorn and depressed. Yeah, that was hilarious. And so it's soon after this, though, that the leader learns, the leader of the loners, that is, learns about the relationship between them. As we know, the penalty for falling in love and engaging in sexual acts and romantic acts is mutilation. So she actually convinces Rachel Weiss's character to go to the city and get an ocular operation to supposedly cure her nearsightedness. And instead she has her ended up being blinded. And that was like, again, just, I, it's like, I understand what you're trying to say. It's like, you know, one sort of oppression, like within the first half, you know, is no better or worse than like another sort of oppression on the back half. But like, man, Ryan, these, these characters just cannot catch a break in this film. Can they? No, but no one is meant to catch a break in this film. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's not just the, the deal. Everybody gets it in the end. The point is life is harsh and, and nobody nobody ends up winning the, the game of life. No. You're either you're either a, a lobster or you're married and, and uh, <laughs> or I don't you're know which blind. one I would choose. <laughs> or you're blind. Right. Which, you know, hey, makes getting married a lot easier, you would think. So less choosy. <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing I didn't sort of understand, and maybe you can help sort of clarify this, or maybe you had the same misunderstanding, but it's a scene like right after they bring Rachel Weiss's character back to the forest and the leader has the girl and like Rachel Weiss is like holding up a knife, like, and she's about to attack them or something. And she's like, Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Like you're still in like the chair. She's like, no, I'm not blah, blah, blah. I'm blind. And then she ends up like, stabbing the one girl and then but then it's like the other girl who's the hotel maid that was helping them escape and stuff yeah yeah but then like when she stabs the hotel maid like the leader also dies but then like she doesn't and i don't i couldn't tell if she was acting if there was some sort of weird psychological thing going on if it was supposed to be some sort of clue like something greater was going on I, i couldn't figure out even after thinking about it for a while like what the nature of that was did you uh, well, I mean, I feel like she used the the leader of the loners, used the hotel maid as a human shield. At this point, Rachel Weiss has been blinded. Uh, she went into a surgery thinking her eyesight was going to be fixed. Um, by the way, it, we have not mentioned that that is what brought Colin Farrell and her together, is that they both are nearsighted. Yes. So that's their common characteristic, which I thought was hilarious. Like, oh, so that's bonding, their, right? the basis of the... <laughs> Those rivers the run solid deep. rock foundation of their whole relationship. 
so the fact that they would blind her wasn't so much to make her blind as it was to make her not nearsighted so that they could no longer be a pairing. So, um, and well, this so leads no, us so all I, the, no, the, I don't the, think that's the case though. I, I don't think, I don't think the surgery went awry. I think that they, they gamed her. I think that they were punishing her in the form of mutilation. Oh no, no, no. They definitely punished her. They punished her, but that's the way I took the punishment was to, make her not nearsighted anymore in the worst possible way, which is to be blind so that she would no longer have a common characteristic with the person she was attracted to. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll add to this, because they still let them hang out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Colin Farrell then becomes her eyes and ears, and they play games together, and he keeps her company, but they can no longer be attracted to each other because they no longer share that common characteristic. Uh, If they were being totally punished, um, they would have punished him. They would have kept them apart. They would have done something, but it was all to keep them separated to remove that common characteristic that throughout the film we have been brought to realize was of the utmost importance in how these people are attracted to each other. So mm-hmm. Loner Lady uses the hotel maid as a human shield. She gets a knife to the belly. She falls over dead. Loner Lady goes over with her and pretends that that was her. Rachel Weiss can't Got tell. Okay. Uh, so she's kind of spinning the knife around like, okay, silent, I gotcha. And then um, she thinks she's about to escape, and she starts to go to the next step, which is how in the hell am I going to get out of here? I'm blind, and I'm in the middle of the forest. I have no idea where I am. How can I survive? Uh, we kind of see her process that for a moment. Uh, and then the loner leader stands up and says, ha ha, you thought I was gone, but I'm still here. How are you going to survive, you crazy bitch? And Rachel Weisz is like, son of a bitch. So he's like, well, if you want to live, come with me. And so uh, (laughs) they pair off into the woods. And that's when, uh, what I didn't get is why the loner leader just let her off the hook so easy because she just straight up killed her homie uh, unless... She wanted her dead for some reason or out of the way. That part wasn't explained. And I do agree with you on that level. But uh, yeah, Yeah. after she kills the the maid, um, the only thing I could think of is that the maid was witness to what had happened and and how she was punished and uh, the betrayal of the whole thing and everything Mm -hmm. that had gone on. So maybe in kill and and the loner lady having her use as a as a human shield, uh, the hotel maid. Um, eliminates the only person aside from the two of them that knows what happened. Mm -hmm. So then she could go back into the forest. Now, here's what also gets a little weird. Around this time, and I'll ask you this and and volley it back to you. It's around this time we stopped seeing anyone else in the film. Up until this point, there were, it seems like as we go along, there are fewer and fewer loners. Um, I took that as they're being hunted and picked off, and we're kind of down to our core group of just uh, Colin Farrell, Rachel Weisz, the loner leader, and that's it. Even um, the hotel maid's supposed mate, uh, the gentleman who uh, Colin Farrell was in contention with for Rachel Weiss's hand, um, I we don't see him anymore either. They all start to just pick off until we're left with our three and then eventually two. And we'll get to that, uh, I guess, right now. This is about the time uh, Colin Farrell gets fed up with how they've been treated and... Uh, offs our loner leader and puts her in her, her grave that she's dug for herself. Well, and I do think to your point, yeah, I think that the idea is that a lot of the loners are being turned into animals because we also start to see 
a lot more animals pop up just sort of in the background. And I actually really True. liked that. But, yep. you know, it's like all of a sudden yeah, there's yeah. like a camel strolling around through the background and like whatever random penguin or something like that. Right. There's like a peacock. Yeah, there's a peacock. Yeah. Yep. So mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And so I think the idea is supposed to be that, like, yeah, you know, these people are getting more and more picked off because as soon as they get picked off, they go back. They're transformed in the animal released okay. in the wild. So that Love would it. that would vibe up yeah. with that. No, yeah, and that's kind of way I took it too. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't alone in that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and like you say, you know, at this no point, we're pretty much right at the end of the film where the two of them decide that, you know, they've got to escape. We have Colin Farrell's character who ends up more or less burying the girl alive, the leader of the loners, and leaving her to the wolves. Yep. And the two of them escape into the city, and very sharply dressed, they arrive at a restaurant. And, you know, they sit down to have a meal and there's all this construction going on in the background. And Colin Farrell's character, David, comes up and says that he's going to blind himself so that he can really, truly sort of reconnect with Rachel Weiss's character. And then they get that common characteristic back. Right. Yeah. And she really doesn't resist that much. I actually have a uh, clip of that. So let's go ahead and listen real quick. Can I have a knife and fork, please? Not a butter knife, a steak knife. Certainly. Thank you. I'm going to do it with a knife. Do you want me to come with you? I'd rather you didn't. Don't worry. It's strange at first, but then you get used to it. And your other senses are heightened. Touch, for example, and hearing. I know. I won't be long. So yeah, so he does get that steak knife and fork from the waitress, and then we see him go into the bathroom, and man, I I, I gotta tell you, dude, like, this was one of those scenes where my butt cheeks were clenched the whole time, dude. I cannot <laughs> stand when sharp objects get right up on people's eyes and like he like was holding his eye open and like the knife was right there and I was just like uh, and it's like it's probably only what 60 to 90 seconds but it felt like seven solid minutes I was like oh please and you were waiting for it you were waiting for it because they haven't really pulled a lot of punches so far in this film so here we go yeah dude shit like that just makes me squirm so much dude it's like yep and then it cut back to Rachel Weiss just sitting there in the booth, kind of unknowing. She's mm-hmm. blind, obviously. It doesn't really know where she's at. Um, so, and this is what I want to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, this is the the whole ending of the film is left very ambiguous. Um, I guess unless you have anything to say uh, about anything else, this is where the film ends. Uh, yes. Again, spoiler alert: <laughs> we see him put the knife dangerously cl- up against the wall and push his head dangerously close to this the point of the knife. Uh, we cut back to Rachel Weiss, and we see her kind of looking around a little um, befuddled a little bit, and then we cut back to him, back to her, and then all of a sudden it just goes black, and we roll credits. Uh, Jason, as she's sitting at the booth, she's no longer just staring forward like a blind person presumably would. Uh, she starts to look around at things. I see her looking out the window and following and tracking people as they walk by. She's tracking the uh, server um, and kind of looking up and around, all of a sudden recognizing things. Do you think she was gaining her eyesight back? Maybe that was a temporary punishment? 
and he's going to permanently blind himself, and then the reverse is going to happen, and they're just star-crossed lovers, mm. uh, that she would be all of a sudden gaining her sight back in that booth. Do you think that's what they're trying to show us, and that it ends kind of ambiguous? I don't know. I wanted to get your opinion on that. Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting take, that? kind of kind of the, uh, the the Romeo and Juliet thing. No, I didn't see it that way. I'll tell you the, the way that I saw it, and that is that, Look, over the course of this film, and we haven't really mentioned it too much, but David is a very self-interested individual, right? Like, I'm not necessarily saying that he is a selfish individual, but he's definitely self-interested, self-directed. We see it by the way that he, you know, is is more than willing to ignore the girl that jumped to her almost death and is writhing in pain so that he can save himself from being turned into a lobster with the Russian girl. So... I really think that in keeping with character, I think that he does not end up blinding himself. And I think that there is a very strong chance that he ends up abandoning her in that restaurant. And I think that because, look, we never actually hear the scream. Right. So after he puts the knife, you know, we don't hear any screaming. We don't hear any sort of like shuffling like he's coming back. And I think that. As she's sitting there, you know, she keeps waiting and waiting. And after a certain amount of time, she's like, wait a minute, this guy is not showing back up. And then I think that that's her her sort of looking down because is sort of that saddening realization of like, oh, shit, dude, like this guy just bailed on me. That's what I interpreted. The so, best. Jason, are you telling me she got stood up on a blind date? <laughs> Yes. Hey, I did it. We'll be right back. Feels so good. Oh, that joke is like just Lucky Charms with no, just all marshmallows in the bowl. I love it. Oh man, and that 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 was completely organic. That was not planned. Ryan, just no, brilliant. That is not in my notes. I just laid it out there for you, folks. You are welcome. You can shut the podcast off now <laughs> we're done don't listen to another episode that's as good as it gets um, <laughs> retiring on top <laughs> i'm going i'm walking that's so that's uh that's in the chat <laughs> i don't even know how to get back into this i'm such an idiot oh i'm oh, single man. ladies um yeah i uh, i gotta say dude so i didn't really i didn't really care for for the ending so much um and it's okay. also it's also one of those things where you know it's not a hundred percent i just feel like I'm just, there's so often we get these ambiguous sort of moments at the end and it's like, did or did it not happen? And like, it just, it feels like a move that a lot of, you know, sort of indie filmmakers do. And I just feel sometimes like they don't always justify it. And so, you know, this kind of felt like one of those instances a little bit and, uh, but you know, I liked it. Yeah, but at the but then but then the more I started thinking about it, I was like, okay, well maybe it's actually not ambiguous. Like maybe like you know, I'm not gonna sit here and say my take on it is 100% accurate. Um, but it you know maybe Could maybe be. it is, and maybe either way, the filmmaker 100% knows, and 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 that's what's important. You know whether or not we do. Um, so right. So yeah, dude. So I mean, but 
kind of like Inception, you know, with the little spinning top, you know, like uh, that was yeah, always exactly. Left, uh, uh-huh. the, was it a dream? Was it not? Yes. It's like fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's exactly the. Type I've been of in stuff this shit for two about. and a half hours, going through like seven layers of dreamscapes, and you're just gonna leave me with a spinning top, you piece of shit. No, I get it. Um, I I do see where you're at in life. I I think that you and I both have interesting stances. Mm-hmm. I think that both could be probabilities, and I will say that I love both of those endings. So whichever one it is, if it is one of those two, I'm on board. I like that he would blind himself and she would get her sight back, and she's like, good news. And he's like, what? I can't see you. He's got blood dripping down his face. <laughs> and uh, I also like that she would get st- stood up because he has shown himself to be a little spineless at times, a little self-serving. You're absolutely right. Um, so maybe if it wasn't in his best interest anymore... Uh, and he kind of saw the reality of what life would be, blinded, um, leading the blind, if you will. Uh, <laughs> that would be a, a shit storm. Uh, they have to go pretend to be married and so forth in public, or uh, maybe they just go get married. Now that they have the commonality, they can do that. Um, yeah, either way, I'm all in for both of those endings. Definitely, man, definitely. So let's go ahead and wrap this up with our three adjectives. Go ahead and hit me with them. Bleak, isolated, hilarity. I uh, put all those together, so this is just some bleak, isolated hilarity. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, man. For my three adjectives, I've got idiosyncratic. This is a movie that is definitely unlike a lot of other films out there and is very much unique uh, unto itself. I've got dualistic. Basically, like you said earlier, sort of a tale of two halves type of film. We've got the first half and the second half that speak to very different sort of messages. And the third, dark as fuck, because this is a pitch black film. (laughs) Yeah, man. All right. We don't even give you any sunshine. It's all just gray and and bleak. That's why I said bleak, you know, it's just very... Very gray and monotone. And they talk like this. And we're going to speak into the microphone. It was kind of like had a very uh, uh, national public radio kind of vibe. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, man. That's funny. So uh, what do you got for us today? You got a a grade rating or a star rating? Ooh, I went grade. I did a uh, B plus. B plus. This is just on the, yeah, this is just on the cusp of being great. Uh, you're right there on the cusp of greatness. I see why people love this film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. There was never a moment in the film where I felt bored or, you know, kind of where is this going? Although, and I, I think that this film in particular rode that line so close because of the nature of what they were doing and how they were handling the material. Uh, again, the any one of the performers, any one of the uh, cast or crew positions could have fallen on their face. Everybody stood up to the challenge and it was just a likable film in a very unlikable world. I feel you, buddy. I uh, I feel like that kind of puts us on par. So for my star rating, because you like to do the grades and I like to do the stars, I went with four and a quarter out of five stars. So I think that pretty much puts star us... Star right. search rules. Yeah, star search. Yes, Ed McMahon. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that kind of puts us right in that, you know, B plus range-ish probably, like four and a half to four and three sure. quarters is probably your A minus, or, you know, four and a half would be your A minus, four, three quarters, your A, and five, your A plus. So I think that puts us right about there. But yeah, great film yeah. either way, and definitely, you know, that does come with a caveat of 
a large part of your enjoyment from this film is going to depend on your tolerance and appreciation for left of center filmmaking. You know, this is not a film that my mother is going to enjoy by any stretch. Uh, she is not going to give it anything close no. to four and a quarter slash B plus, And I'm not going to ever recommend that you check it out. Right. So, but you know, <laughs> I loved it. You loved it. Uh, I watched it with my wife. She loved it. So I think that pretty much anybody with, like I said, you know, sort of left of center sensibilities, you're going to enjoy it. That does wrap up this half episode of Esoteric to Cinema. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Hit us up at Esoteric to Cinema. And don't just follow us, but make sure to reach out. Let us know what you think about this film, about our program, about us as individuals. You know, which one of us you like what better. What animals so you'd be if you never fell it. in love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, so like I said, Twitter at Esoteric to Cinema. If you prefer... You can also send us, you know, long scathing emails about how much we suck. And you can do that at esotericacinema at gmail.com. I will tell you, they don't all have to be scathing emails. You can also tell us about, uh, you know, how much you, you love us and how how sultry, you know, mine or Ryan's voice may be. And how, you know, just that sort of grating nasal quality that mine has just lulls you to sleep every night in a sort of peaceful way. You, you can go ahead and let me know that. I'm okay with that. Jason, you have the voice of a parrot with a speech impediment. I just love it. <laughs> John C. Riley would be so happy to have this voice. <laughs> yep. It's uh it's really good stuff. We are gonna be back in two. Thank you weeks. for having me. Absolutely, dude. You 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 are you are uh quickly becoming a mainstay on this show. I hope to have you around for a whole lot longer because I really enjoy doing these films with you, man. Um, everybody listening, thanks uh, a lot. Uh, we will be back in two weeks. I We're think I just found my mate. I think I don't have to be single anymore, everybody. Love. No, as we turn into a, <laughs> we turn into a, whatever I, I'm going to have to give some thought as to what animal I would be. Uh, I have to think about that. Maybe I'll get back to you. All right, man, for sure. Uh, like I said, guys, we're going to be back in two weeks with a full episode. We'll be looking at Fritz the Cat and Swiss Army Man. We really appreciate you hanging out with us today on Esoterica Cinema. We'll see you next time. Are you looking for the hottest, trendiest spot to spend the last 45 days of your life? We'll search no further. At the hotel, we've made some changes. Sexy changes. Sexy changes. Feeling frisky? Take part in one of our all-nude loner hunts, now shot in stunning 120 FPS, so you can take in every last crevice of all that jiggling flesh. Jiggling flesh. Or head on down to our newly reimagined jacuzzi area, now featuring suicide prevention nets, so you can enjoy the vibe the hotel has to offer, without all of that pesky howling and agony. Howling. Want something a bit more stimulating? Check out our always popular, not quite masturbation chamber, where one of our alluring housekeepers will gyrate lightly on your pelvis, leaving you mildly flaccid and oh so semi hard. Not satisfying. Serve your time and get your rocks off at the new and sex proved The Hotel. We're waiting for you to come. Aberrant Literature is proud to present the next great anthology in modern fiction, Aberrant Tales, edited by Jason Peters. 
Most anthologies are content to sit in one lane, offering bland, repetitive versions of the same types of stories. Aberrant Tales is different. Aberrant literature turns the anthology on its head by blending together multiple genres within the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. With Aberrant Tales, no two stories are ever the same. In one story, you're being transported to a faraway future where corporations allow access to visions of your future, while in the next, you're taken to a distant land of dark fantasy featuring errant knights and grotesque monstrosities. Aberrant Tales is a unique collection of short fiction for those who are tired of the same old thing. It's unapologetically creative, wonderfully imaginative, and embraces its own unique spirit. Find Aberrant Tales today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.